0: This evening we're going to look at Luke chapter 1, verses 39 to 56, and as you find your place there in the text, I'll ask you why I justified or indicated that these are the limits of our study this evening, why put together verses 39 to 56. I'm obviously treating it as a literary unit or a narrative unit. Why am I doing that? Actually, I believe Luke is doing it, so why is Luke doing it? <clears throat> it happens where lives. Okay, does it start where Elizabeth lives? Does verse 39 start? Where Elizabeth lives. It does not. Where does it start? In Nazareth. It starts in Nazareth, from which Mary arose. <clears throat> She's a citizen of Nazareth. She's living in Nazareth. She rises up from Nazareth and goes to a city in the hill country of Judah. <clears throat> You'll notice that in verse 63. <clears throat> I'm sorry in 65 it's called Judea. those are synonyms unnamed city uh, from which uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah uh, arise. All right so we begin in Nazareth in verse 39 and we scene shift we shift the scene in the narrative to Judea or Judah. What about verse 56? We start where in 56? She returned home. Yes, we start in Judah or Judea in Elizabeth's house, and we're back to Nazareth, namely Mary's house in in Nazareth. All right, so the scene shift pattern here distinguishes the limits of the narrative. We have a self-contained narrative between these respective scene shifts, the unit ends where it begins. It begins in Nazareth. It ends in Nazareth. It gives us a full inclusion, a full or complete inclusio of beginning and ending locations. And sandwiched between those is the alternate location. The drama in this unit is on location in that unnamed city of Judea. Well, before we talk about the drama on the location or in the location, I want to ask about this seclusion or hiddenness motif, which you'll find explicitly in verse 24, where Elizabeth secludes herself for five months after conceiving John the Baptist. Why does Mary go to see Elizabeth? <clears throat> in the film, "The Nativity Story," produced in 2007, available on DVD, and starring Siren Hines, amongst others, Siren Hines, perhaps known to you <clears throat> as Captain Wentworth in the persuasion, the Amanda Root Persuasion by Jane Austen, the Jane Austen novel put the film. If you don't know about that film, it is a tremendous movie, and I highly recommend it. Sirin Hines is also uh, Lord Tarleton in the Amazing Grace film, the story of William Wilberforce's crusade to abolish slavery in England, and Sirin Hines plays a member of parliament who opposes Wilberforce's approach. Once again, another tremendous movie. Cyril Hines in this movie plays Herod the Great. In my opinion, not particularly effectively, but the movie itself is well done in terms of the dramatic aura or the dramatic atmosphere of what it would have been like for Mary and Joseph in the village of Nazareth. And what the film does with respect to this seclusion or hiddenness motif which I'm uh, commenting on here at this point. The film has Mary leave Nazareth when she finds out she has conceived Jesus and go to Elizabeth's house for three months, as you'll notice at verse 56, for three months in order to seclude herself, to hide herself away from the gossips in Nazareth before she begins to show, pregnancy-wise, and becomes an object of discussion because she's unmarried. Well, it's an interesting reflection on grappling with what Mary and Joseph must have experienced or could have experienced uh, in that village, and a way of avoiding it at least for three months. And so that's the reason I bring it up, in addition to recommending the movie, because the movie is, in fact, very well done. Uh, But also, the movie features this in a very subtle way, but a way which uh, has the aura of plausibility. All right, so, the the, the whole uh, (coughs) pericope here is 39 to 56, and I'm asking next... (coughs) Is it divided into any subunits? Is the whole divided into parts? And I'm going to suggest that there are two. Verses 39 to 45 are the first subunit, and verses 46 to 55 are the second subunit. Now, I believe that they are indicated as such. In other words, we know that these are subunits because of an indiciae, an indication. Something that signals that they are, in fact, subunits. So, what do you see in verse 39 that is similar to what you see in verse 46, and would be, therefore, a logical explanation for why we have subunit 39 to 45, and subunit 46 to 55. What do you see in the text? In verse 39, what do you see? In verse 46, what do you see? Mary said. said. Okay, so Mary arose in verse 39, and a narrative unit follows from that. Then Mary speaks in verse 46, and... A narrative unit flows from that. So we have a, a focus or a, a focus of the camera on Mary here in terms of her action to leave Nazareth. And when she comes to the city in Judea, she speaks forth a very famous poem or a very famous song. We'll comment on that in a bit. <clears throat> But who speaks in verses 41 to 44? It is Elizabeth who is speaking. Now, as you look at those verses, 41 to 44, do you notice any symmetrical elements? Once again, when we talk about symmetry, we're talking about duplication. We're talking about iteration. We're talking about recursion. All of those terms are appropriate to describing symmetry. And where we have symmetry, we have an intentional uh, indication or literary or rhetorical element that the writer Luke is using. He's doing it for a reason. Symmetry in Hebrew or uh, Greek literature for the New Testament, Hebrew literature for the Old Testament, symmetry is not incidental. It is intentional. It is a crafting device. It is a literary device, narrative device, theological device. So, what do you see here in 41 to 44? Look for the duplications. Blessed it. Blessed Blessed. Okay, there is a duplication in 41. In, I'm sorry, in uh Forty-two. That is true. Thank you for You're close. Okay. Okay. Where do you see womb? Three times. Okay. If if you're seeing, if you're looking for a framing device, you're looking for an exact duplication. But womb is a clue. Where do you see it first? Go ahead, okay. Where is it first? Yes. Where do you see that again? Back to the very same phrase. Verse forty-one and forty-four are duplicated. There's a reiteration there. What else is reiterated in forty-one and forty-four? One more word. Sound. Bird. The word greedy. The word greeting. <clears throat> All right, so we have the sequence greeting plus baby leaped in her womb in verse 41. We have the same sequence greeting plus a baby leaped in my womb, verse 44. <clears throat> verse 41 is the narrator's description of the event. Verse 44 is the experience's experiencer's description of the event, the testimony to the event by the one who experienced it. Now, this is an interesting point. The reiteration here may be a result of Luke's investigation, the research he did from the eyewitness testimony he took to how he put together this gospel. But at any rate, we have a kind of framed bracket around verses 41 and 44 because they begin and end the same way. 41 begins and 41 ends this little bracket of Elizabeth's speech, which continues in verse 45. Now who's she talking about in 41 to 44? Who is twice blessed in 42? Mary. Is Mary the one that's blessed in verse forty-five? You see, the word "blessed" appears again in verse 40, forty-five. Is she talking about Mary again? <clears throat> yes. We have one vote for yes. I'm going to say no. You're going to say no. You want to argue with Randy, okay? No. It's Cheryl versus Randy. Let's let let's, let's hear you. I made you- This is not an argument. This is a this is a Christian brother and sister like discussion. Go ahead, Cheryl. You say no. Yeah, because it and blessed is she who believed. You know what? I think I might change my mind. Oh. But who's the one that believed? First. Maybe both of them. Ah! That's interesting, isn't it? Maybe this is phrased in such a way to be intentionally ambiguous. In other words, it's Elizabeth focusing on Mary in 41 to 44, but in 45, she expresses something which would fold them both into the blessed category herself and Mary. So the bracket that we notice with the duplication would focus exclusively on Mary and the child in her womb. But here in 45, the blessed is the one who believed. Well, Elizabeth did believe. It was Zacharias who didn't. He was rebuked for not believing. In fact, he was made dumb for not believing. But she did. So is she kind of Suggesting herself in verse forty-five, as well as the one who who had taken or accepted the fulfillment of what was spoken by the Lord, as Mary did. Mary didn't balk at what was spoken by the Lord, except to ask, "How could it be, since I know not a man?" All right, I think it's a I think it's a fascinating uh, option here to consider. This is an ambiguous statement, but it's a statement which is set off from the previous statement because the previous statement is recursively bracketed with the very same phrases, greeting plus baby leaped in my womb. <laughs> Go ahead, Kay. But it said, in it says, to her, and the Lord did not speak to Olympus, Lord spoke to her. Correct. But she accepted the word that he relayed to her as she says now my disgrace has been taken away verse 25 that that's a good point <laughs> you, you, you're being very literal there <laughs> All right, so I say ambiguously because Kay has put her finger on a point which would push the ambiguity over towards Mary exclusively. So I have to admit that that is perfectly possible. I can't solve this one, but uh, it's worth thinking about. Go ahead, Mary Jo. Well, in verses 42 through 44, Elizabeth is saying, you, you are blessed, your are so on, but in 45 she says she. Well, that's a di- that's a switch, right? She's going from the direct address speaking to Mary about Mary. Right. She's still speaking to Mary, but now she's saying she, which does seem more inclusive. I like all this help I'm getting. <laughs> but so you're, you? you're, you're you're agreeing with the more ambiguous option in 45. Yes. Anybody else want to come to my aid? Uh, we can't solve this, obviously. That's the reason Randy and Cheryl are having a good-natured discussion back and forth. <laughs> I'm moderating. I'm in between. <laughs> I like this idea when I first thought about it. Verse 45 is more ambiguous because it folds both of the women into the paradigm of the blessedness that has come to them. <clears throat> so that's another reason I like it. But uh, <clears throat> I'm impressed with the things that you've said and we'll leave it at that, because we can't be dogmatic about a conclusion. We don't be suggestive here. All right. We come to verses 46 to 55, which is usually what is featured in treatment of this section. And what do we call this? It is a Magnificat. And what language is Magnificat? Latin. It is Latin. And what does it mean? Uh, was Abigail trying to answer that, Mary Jo? I was trying to answer it. It's a third person singular, right? He, she, it magnifies. Right. He, she, it magnifies. Yes. It, in this case, magnifies. What magnifies? Well, the lesson of the Latin text is mea anima. Can you do that, Mary Jo? My spirit. My spirit or my? Soul. My soul. Very good. So, my soul, it magnifies the Lord. The Magnificat. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> there is one magnificent Magnificat. It is the marvelous Magnificat. And if you have never heard it, please Queue up the YouTube website that I've placed there and listen to it and let your soul soar. Johann Sebastian Bach's Magnificat. Just the first three minutes or so of this piece is enough to lift your heart to heaven. It is glorious. And this YouTube version that I've got there on your handout is spectacular. So, I'm not suggesting you listen to the whole 30-minute piece, but if you wish, you may. <clears throat> uh, it goes through the Magnificat and other parts of this song. But this is the most famous Magnificat in uh, classical music, church music. It's the first piece of music that Bach wrote when he became Kapellmeister, master and <clears throat> in the in, in <clears throat> in that city where he went, I, now I can't remember where he went. If, does anybody remember where he went? I can't. I can't remember either. <clears throat> but anyway, he was choir director, and this was the first piece because he arrived on uh, uh, during the, the Advent season, and this was the first piece he wrote. Well, at any rate, what does Bach do? Well, for the glory of God, Sola Deo Gloria (SDG), which is the way he signed all of his music. For the glory of God, he uses the brass instruments in his orchestra to provide brightness, joy, exuberance, joy being trumpeted to the glorious majesty of God. Bach's soul says, magnificat mea anima. My soul magnifies and the brass carry that uh, tremendous exuberance. Then, accompanying the brass are the wind instruments, which poignantly sound that melody with their more subtle and mellifluous tones. Underneath and behind, the brass, the woodwinds, and their echoes. Well, of course, there are strings in this orchestra. And... They carry the counter melody, reinforcing the brightness and joy of the brass and the wind. So you've got point and counterpoint. Bach is working both sides of the orchestra, both sides of the musical exaltation. But what makes this piece particularly stirring is the timpani, the beat of the timpani echoing and re-echoing the dramatic cadence of this marvelous declaration, my soul doth magnify the Lord. And if your soul doth not magnify the Lord after you hear box magnificat, I don't have any hope for you. (laughs) And if you have never heard it, you are not educated. It is a piece of music that every educated human being who is a Christian ought to know. At least the first three minutes of it. So give yourself a treat. If you've never heard it, dial it up. You can play it on your computer these days. It won't cost you a dime. You don't have to get out of your, cha- your soft chair in front of your computer to do it. It's right there on the URL. No, you don't have to report to me next week. But if you want to tell me that you liked it or you want to tell me that you never heard it before or you want to tell me that it is magnificent, it is majestic, it is a marvelous Magnificat. I'll be glad to hear it. Okay, now, beyond Bach's version, we know who is speaking here. This is Mary's Magnificat. But we want to examine, once again, the structure. The structure of this song, which is, incidentally, Luke's first Christmas hymn. There are four Christmas hymns in Luke's infancy narratives. We will treat all four of them eventually. This is the first one. The second one will be Zacharias' Blessed Be the Lord God of Israel, verse 68, We'll try to tackle that one next time. And then the Gloria in chapter 2, the Gloria in Excelsis. That's the third Christmas hymn of Luke's gospel. And the fourth, the most poignant, is Simeon's Nunc Dimittis, Now Let Your Servant Depart in Peace. Once again, we will cover all four of these, but tonight we begin with the first. No hymns in the New Testament. There are four hymns in the New Testament. Luke has them. You don't need to be an exclusive psalmist. You can sing hymns because Luke has the characters singing them for you. It's okay. Really. We can have inclusive psalmody. Yes, we'll sing the psalms but well, we're not going to be locked into singing about the incarnation from the other side of the resurrection as if he hasn't come. We're going to join the angels who sing on the nether side of the resurrection. Songs and hymns and spiritual songs. Please, let's have the fullness of song that the angels and the saints in glory already sing. All right, so this hymn of Mary has subunits. Now, I've actually placed them on your outline for you. I didn't uh, take time to pick your brains about, do you see them? I actually gave you the answer ahead of time. But now, I'm going to pick your brain, why did I give you this answer? In other words, what is it that distinguishes these two units of her magnificat? Verses 46 to 49, unit number one, versus 50 to 55, unit number two. Why are they different? Go ahead, Randy. One is kind of a historical discourse, and the other is a prayer. Which would you say is a historic report and which would you say is a prayer? <coughs> in the order that you spoke of. Okay, so you're saying 46 to 49 is a historical report or is a prayer? Historical report. That's a historical report. And 50 to 55 is a prayer. Or a praise. Or, or a praise. Something along those lines. Well, in 50 to 55, she pulls in Israel, Abraham... The generations, the mighty deeds, that sounds like history to me. Well, that's, you wanna, that's, you that's wanna, ancient history, the, the other one present history. You, you, right? you want to switch your categories? No, the first okay. group is present history, the All other right. ancient history. All right, you're still wrong, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> you asked this once. No, there's no right and wrong here. There's just, uh, let's think about it. You are actually on the right track to a degree. But what's the difference? What do you see in 46 to 49? I'll give you a clue. Pronouns. Mm -hmm. What pronoun is used? And that is what pronoun? First yes, it is a first person personal pronoun. She not only uses my, she uses me. My in 46 and 47, me in 48 and 49. You'll notice that there is no other pronoun there. Okay? Except third for God, third person for God. <clears throat> but she refers to herself <clears throat> by the first person personal pronoun. Now, what do we have in verses fifty? 255. It's true. We're not not denying that. But we're noticing that the me and my appears in 46 to 49. You will notice it does not appear in 50 to 55. So that sets 46 to 49 over against 50 to 55. It divides it off. What pronoun is in? What pronoun does she use in verses fifty to fifty-five? I'm sorry, I'm sorry. Is that a pronoun? He. E. He. Yes, it's true. <clears throat> I'm looking for something else. First one appears in verse fifty. Those, yes, third person plural. And where else does those appear? Notice verse 52. All right, so those in 50 and 52. And the last one that is different is 55. Our, first person plural. All right, so the shift in the personal pronouns, particularly the shift away from me and my, to those an hour is a distinguishing element in these two units. There's something else that sets them apart. Compare verse 49 to verse 51. Once again, when I say compare, look for symmetry. Look for duplication. Mighty appears, that is correct. Something else. Notice the verb. Verse 49. What's the verb? Has done. What's the verb in 51? Has done, done. it's exactly the same in the Greek. All right, so what what are we suggesting from this, what we've examined to this point? 46 to 49 has the first person singular pronoun, me and my, and closes with what God has done, the acts of God which is the reason I avoided the he pronoun before, because the he of God involvement is in both sections. I was looking for what was distinguishing the two sections. All right, so the close of the first section is what God has done. But that also means that what God has done opens the acts of God in verses 51 to 55. So, 46 to 49 ends with the acts of God, what he has done. 51 to 55, at least, <clears throat> opens with what God has done, <clears throat> his acts of God, which leaves verse 50 out in space. Not really. But one more note. 46 to 49 consists of 46 Words in the Greek New Testament. Fifty one to fifty five consists of 50 45 words in the Greek New Testament. These two units, <clears throat> that is forty six to forty nine and fifty one to fifty five are almost exactly alike in length. In length. In terms of the number of Greek words that make up the unit. Now, that's not a definitive determination, but it is an interesting determination, particularly in view of what we've already said. There's a unique pronoun pattern in verses 46 to 49. There is a, another alternative unique pronoun pattern in verses 51 to 55. Verses 46 to 49 end with an emphasis upon what God has done, exactly the same Greek verb that begins verse 51, what God has done. These two sections are then separated by verse 50. David, you have a comment? Well, isn't that a function of relying on whomever put the, divided up the text into verses? I mean... The person that divided the text up into verses was canny. In fact, uncanny. In many cases, he's a medieval fellow named Stephen Langton who assigned the verses for the first time to the text so that they didn't have to go pouring through all the codices in order to find the passage they were looking for. They had what called glossed indexes, which had parts of phrases in the Middle Ages so they could find their places in the whole corpus, particularly in the Latin Bible. The Biblia Biblia Sacra Cum Glossae Ordinaria of Nicholas of Lyra was the most famous. Huge. You know, multi-volume. Volumes is high of the glossed Greek or glossed Vulgate uh, Old and New Testament with Apocrypha. But at any rate, um, uh, the the uncanniness here is that he had an instinct for the literary style. And so in assigning the verses... He assigned them, in my opinion, for the most part, properly at the proper points of division. So he's, he's, he's not inventing anything as much as he's recognizing what's there and putting numbers beside it in order to give you the break or the pause. I'm going backwards and, and pretending that there are no numbers there, and I'm looking for the patterns in the Greek text. And I'm matching those patterns up to suggest units of literary uh, drama or narrative drama or rhetorical power. Okay. All right, now, since verse 50 is kind of left between these two units, 46 to 49, 51 to 55, What's the function of verse 50? It's kind of the summary of matters. I think. Nope. It ties the two first uh, piece together. How? Generation to generation. Mm, okay. So what's its function? If it were attached to a door, it would be a what? There you go. This is the hinge. This is the pivot point. this is the this is the pivot upon which the two units swing. The first unit swings into verse 50. Second unit swings out of verse 50. 46 to 49 are here. 50 to 51 to 55 are here and the elbow is 50. Now, why do I say that? Because of the symmetry of the word mercy. You'll notice in verse 50, the word mercy is duplicated in verse 54. Mercy in 50 is referring to the generation's after generations of those who fear him. Quotation from Psalm 103. Who are these generations? They are the generations like Mary and Elizabeth and Zacharias and John the Baptist in utero and believing Israel at this time, verse 48, the present time. Mary then is moving herself and those whom she is speaking for in the present time into the generations that exist of believing Israel time present. Well, what's she doing in verses 51 to 54? Well, she goes back to Abraham in verse 55. She goes back to Israel in verse 54. She goes back to the fathers. Who are the fathers? These are the Old Testament believers. Not just Abraham and Israel, but the fathers and mothers of Old Testament believing Israel time past. So, 46 to 49, believing Israel time present, this generation, and 51 to 55, believing Israel time past, Abraham, Isaac, Israel's, the father's generation, time past. She is pulling together history 51 to 55, with present existential 46 to 49, Fulfillment and experience, or reality, or magnifying, or exalting, or, Lord, my Savior. For he is the Savior of that present generation for whom she's speaking, and he is the Savior of that past generation who are, notice verse 55 again, the seed of Abraham. Abraham. The seed of Abraham. It's an anticipation of Paul's interpretation of Galatians 3, isn't it? Who are the children of Abraham? You are! Every one of you who believes, you're a son or daughter of Abraham. It's not Jewishness. It's not circumcision. It's not the flesh. It's not because you've got kosher genes. It's because you believe in Abraham's seed, Abraham's son, the seed, the son, Christ Jesus, the eschatological Israel. Randy? Yeah, when, when... when you taught on Zephaniah and Lamentations, you kind that heads that the Genius behind the symmetry in those books was the human author. Who's the genius behind the human author genius behind this symmetry? I don't have any question as Mary. But How can Mary come up with that? Because, because look at what she's look at your cross look at your cross references. She didn't study anything, did she? What are the illusions here? Look at your cross references. What are the illusions? What's she borrowing on? Where's the imagery come from? If you had a Greek nestle along the New Testament, you could see it in bold print because they highlight it that way. It's coming from the Old Testament. Coming from what part of the Old Testament? Genesis. So From the Psalter. Most of these verses have an allusion to the Psalter. <clears throat> Some of your cross-reference Bibles will show you that in the margin. Okay? So, does Mary know the Bible? She sure does. Does she know the Old Testament? She sure does. Does she know the Psalter? She sure does. After all, she goes to synagogue every Sabbath, every every from ever since she was a little girl. Just like Jesus, just like Jesus goes to synagogue. No, not in the synagogue. They're not doing it in Greek. Yeah, what but, but, but we're getting is the Greek. She she spoke this in Hebrew, right? Probably. That's a sixty-four thousand dollar question. <laughs> I'm sorry that I can't answer that one. I don't know that anybody that can, but it's at the whole mare's nest of what's underneath it. <clears throat> I'm I'm content to rest at this point that it comes from Mary's own poetic genius by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, but nonetheless a gift that she had because she's weaving together threads of exaltation and joyfulness from the Old Testament psalter. That is possible, correct? Even for a peasant girl of Nazareth, correct? I would lean towards the Holy Spirit and the genius myself. Uh-oh, I'll not argue with you leaning towards the Holy Spirit in any instant. I'm all in favor. I'm all in favor of that. But the Holy Spirit uses the ability and the background and the natural gifts of the individual that he inspires. So she may have been more educated than the, the average person. That exactly, exactly. Do you think Jesus was more educated than the edu- average person? I think he must have got homeschooled, I guess.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> I'm afraid there wasn't much of anything else available in Nazareth at that, at that time. It, it called the rabbinical school and the bar mitzvah and all that type of thing that's behind it. But uh, nonetheless, <clears throat> that raises the question of the level of literacy of uh Jesus and his contemporaries and in fact the more we understand about palestine the more we realize that palestine had a very high rate of literacy partly because of the international flavor of the of the region the trade routes the kind of uh, of cultural interface and interaction that was there <clears throat> We cannot regard these as benighted peasants. They're brighter than that. So, once again, I'm going to take a concluding position that is not impossible for Mary to have composed this herself. I am a minority. Most all the critical commentaries say Luke invented this and put it into Mary's mouth. I don't think so. Very good. We agree on something. Once in a while. And on that point, we'll take a break. I don't want to risk any (laughs) more. Now we're at the bottom of page uh, one of the outline handout. And the major motif of the entire Magnificat, which is the pattern... (coughs) of lifting up and bringing down. So that the next page of your outline talks about those vectors, the vectors of exaltation and humiliation. As you read through the Magnificat, you see this language which refers to lifting up the lowly and bringing down the proud and haughty and arrogant. So those vectors are, in fact, patterns which also can be traced through the sections that we have distinguished, 46 to 49. Now, in verses 46 to 49, virtually all of the vectors are upward, uplifting vectors, being lifted up with exaltation. My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit has rejoiced. That's a That's an upward vector, okay? And if I'm doing this by kind of vector arrows, these are up arrows and distinguishing from down arrows, which are humbling or humiliating vectors. Now, I'm going to suggest that as you go through verses 46 to 49, all of the vectors are, in fact, upward arrows. They're exaltation motifs. Now, you may say, well, in verse 48 She talks about her humble state, and yet it's not her humble state in terms of its humility. It's her humble state in terms of being lifted up out of that. So I'm going to quibble about that a little bit and say that even verse 48 is an upward vector. 49 is definitely an upward vector because she's extolling the mighty one, namely God himself, and the great things which he has done. But when we come to verse fifty one, we have a switch in the vector paradigm. In verse fifty one A, as you read the first line of that verse fifty (coughs) one A. What vector do you, do you have there? What, how would you describe? Is that an up arrow or a down arrow? That's an up arrow. Okay? <clears throat> now in 51B, what kind of an arrow do we have there? That's a downward arrow. Okay, in 52A, what kind of an arrow do we have there? That's another mm. down arrow, isn't it? What about 52B? And what about 53A? And 53B? Now, if we graph it this way, in other words, if we graph the relationship of the exaltation, humiliation paradigm, what do you see? You see an exact chiastic mirror at every point of the two phrases in the three verses. They are the exact reverse of one another as we move through the imagery. The other thing that we notice is that we have a sequence of duplicate arrows here and here, which is a concatenation device. Verse 51 is tied to verse 52 by the same paradigmatic arrow, and 52B is tied to 51A by the same paradigmatic arrow. This is a tightly constructed paradigm, but it is a tightly constructed paradigm which mirrors itself in the interface between the joy of exaltation and being lifted up and The humiliation of being cast down or brought down. The balance here is remarkable. It's not only an instrument of genius. It's an instrument of theological reversal or inverse imagery. I want to say more about this later on because. The inversion of the imagery here, the reversal of exaltation and humiliation here, so tightly woven in this chiastic or mimetic paradigm, concatenated or tied together, chained together as a seamless unit. This is very suggestive of something beyond itself. And so we want to pause a little later and ask ourselves, what is being suggested here but this, this section of these two verses in the Magnificat are actually quite poignant and quite profound now one of the questions that's raised with respect to Magnificat is whether it's related to Hannah's song in first Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 11 the song of Hannah, the wife who was barren, who eventually was the mother of Samuel. Many years ago, when I first approached the hymns of Luke's gospel, well, it's over 40 years ago now, I was captivated by the suggestion that the inspiration behind Mary's Magnificat was Hannah's song in 1 Samuel 2. And I was captivated by it in part because the commentators that I was reading, the articles that I was studying, were also endorsing that opinion. So, like a foolish student of other Ph.D. gurus, I decided, well, obviously Mary's Magnificat is patterned on Hannah's song, right? Right. Now, I've told you before that I spent last summer working over the Greek text and a number of commentaries and specialized studies on this uh, for, on these first two chapters of Luke's gospel. And now I've been forced to look at the Greek text. And the Greek text of Mary's Magnificat bears no similarity whatsoever to the Greek or the Hebrew text of Hannah's song in First Samuel 2. Much to my chagrin, I can't go back 45 years and say, I repent I was wrong, but, because many of those people aren't alive anymore, but I can say it to you and don't make the same mistake. Or don't listen to the interpreters who will say, aha, you see, what is behind Mary's Magnificat is Hannah's song for a baby boy. It doesn't even match, does it? Remember, She's an intact virgin, right? She has no husband, right? Is Hannah an intact virgin? Does she have a husband? She has a husband. She's not an intact virgin. So, apples and oranges don't match here. Come on. Dennison, what's the matter with you 45 years ago? Da. Yeah, well, you see the the impress of uh, professional expertise blinds even those of us that ought to know better all right so returning then to the substance of the issue <clears throat> most of the old testament allusions in this magnificat of mary which we've, as a statement we've already made I'll repeat it for emphasis most of these allusions are to old testament passages from the Psalms, not Old Testament passage from 1 Samuel 2, verses 1 to 11. The only similarity between Hannah's song and Mary's Magnificat is that there are two lowly or humble servants of the Lord singing because God has bestowed the favor of a child upon them, that they share, the details of the language they do not share. There is no interdependence. There is no intertextuality here. It ain't in the book. So, Pete. Before you get too hard on yourself, there is a similarity, though. It says The Lord kills and brings to life, He brings it down your shield and raises up. Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and he exalts. He raises up the poor from the dust. He lifts the needy from the ashes and makes them sit with princes and inherit the seed of God. No direct dependence. No dependence, but there is a similarity. There is a similarity of the humility and exaltation motif. With that I agree. But remember, these critics and scholars are saying that the language of the one is a mirror of the language of the other. Not so.
1: Not in the Septuagint
0: or the Greek text of First Samuel two, and not in the Hebrew text of First Samuel two. Alright, now uh you could still carrying carry on uh, tilting at windmills. I'm done. No, I'm, I'm being facetious. Um, I'm not persuaded. Uh, in fact, I think I've been converted to the opposite direction. But nonetheless, you can work me over. Now, the response of John the Baptist in utero. In verse 41, Elizabeth, full of the Holy Spirit, you will notice, recognizes the bearer of her Lord. In verse 15, John the Baptist, full of the Holy Spirit, recognizes his Lord in the bearer. Now, I say verse 15, anticipating what he is in utero, because while he is in utero by the Spirit, because he's filled with the Spirit from his conception, by the Spirit, he recognizes his Lord in the bearer. Now, this is a symmetry of mutual action of the Holy Spirit. Both John the Baptist and his mother. Both his mother and the son. Both of them possess the Holy Spirit. Both of them regenerated in and by the Spirit. Both of them have the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells within, abides with, John the Baptist, Fetus, and his mother. The work of the Holy Spirit is principial here because not only does the text say so, but remember, Luke is the companion of the Apostle Paul, who is the apostle of the Holy Spirit to the nations. The Holy Spirit is moving in the book of Acts. Outside of Palestine, outside of Nazareth, outside of Bethlehem, outside of Jerusalem, outside of the upper room, outside of Judaism. And that Holy Spirit was moving in Judaism with the figures who gave rise to that work of the Spirit's unction and brought forth those who would promote and advance. The knowledge and understanding and the extent of that spirit's unction to fold in in, not only Elizabeth and Zacharias and John the Baptist and the conception of Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary. But to continue that spirit born, spirit inborn, spirit reborn drama beyond Luke 24 through the book of Acts and to the ends of the world. That spirit has not been quenched and will never be until Jesus returns. So whatever our discouragements may be, this we know. The gates of hell will not prevail against the work of the Holy Spirit. They will not. He will Bring by regenerative power, by the indwelling power that he placed in Zechariah, in, in Zecharias, Elizabeth, John the Baptist, and a multitude of others. He will continue to do so until our Lord returns. Upon that, you may believe and hope and exalt and lift up your hearts with joy. All right, now. The eschatology of the Magnifico. Obviously, we have to talk about eschatology, because I always do, right? You'd be disappointed. You want your money back if I didn't say anything about eschatology. Well, here's your money's worth. All right, first of all, verse 55. What is eschatological about verse 55? Anyone? Forever. The word forever is eschatology, not yet. Eschatology, not yet. Verse 50. Where's the eschatology there? From generation to generation or generation after generation. It is actually parallel to the word forever in verse 55. It is eschatology not yet again because it is generation to generation to generation to generation unending and finally verse 48 where's the eschatology in verse 48 okay Abigail I'm not hearing you clearly speak up shout it out okay you say from now on that's what your text reads Okay, you reading NIV? You're reading ESV. Mm. Now I'm going to have to take out after that one. All right, the Greek text there is from this time, verse 48, from this time. Yeah, to all generations is a, is a reinforcement. I'll come back to that one later. But notice, the eschatology of 48 is in that phrase, from this time. That's eschatology now. From this now time to forever. From this now to not yet. From this time to generation upon generation, generation after generation. So, the now, not yet eschatology is right here in Mary's Magnificat. Now, from this time on, notice from this time on, all generations are going to call me blessed to our time, to 20,000, 2016. We're in that time. This time breaks the mold. This time sets a new time. From this time forward, eschatology of the now time, but also eschatology of the forever time eschatology of the generation after generation time, eschatology of the eternal, never-ending, forever time. What we have in the Magnificat is what we have in the whole New Testament. What we have in the Magnificat is what we have in Jesus himself. What we have in the Magnificat and in Jesus and in Apostle Paul is the New Testament eschatology, the now, not yet eschatology, the eschatology of the now arrival of the time of salvation And the not yet forever endurance of that time forever and ever. The Lord my Savior, verse 47, the Lord God my Savior is a Savior now, eschatology now, and forever. Not yet. Eschatology, not yet. That's the eschatological tandem of the whole New Testament. Every writer. Whether it is Jesus, Matthew, whether it is Paul, Luke, whether it is John, the writer of Hebrews, whether it is Jude, James, whether it is Peter. Whatever the writer, whoever the writer, the eschatology of what they write is now, not yet. That's the glue of the eschatology of the Bible, the New Testament in particular. All right, now there's another Eschatological thread here. Once again, it connects those three verses. 48, 50, and 55. So I'm going to begin with 55 again. Question from that verse is, who are the offspring or seed of Abraham? Are they not the believers in God their Savior forever? Or they are the sons and daughters who have eternal forever life, are they not? The connection then of the seed or offspring of Abraham brings up that whole covenant promise of a seed that would be a blessing to all the nations, including the nation of believing Jews in the Old Testament, and the nation of Jewish and Gentile believers in every nation in this time. That is a pregnant allusion to the fulfillment of the promise that Abraham's seed are the believers of every age. They have eschatological life. They have eternal life forever, as the verse says. Verse 50, who are the offspring or seed of Abraham? Are they not also those from generation to generation who believe in God their Savior? Or as the Hebrew text of Psalm 103, verse 17, which is being quoted here in Luke 1, verse 50, as the Hebrew text says, are they not those who possess God's mercy from, notice what the Hebrew says, Ma'olam la'olam. From eternity to eternity. From everlasting to everlasting. Verse 50. The eschatological mercy possessors. The eschatological mercy possessors. From one generation to another. Jew and Gentile generations alike. And finally verse 48. Who are the offspring or seed of Abraham? Are they not those members of an eternal generation, not also the generation of those from the birth of Christ who will enter into that eschatological time, now? Now and henceforth forevermore. A time in which eternity is manifest in the flesh. A time in which eternity becomes incarnate in human flesh. And from now on, all who believe on that name have believed on the eternal, incarnate, God-man, theanthropic person, Jesus of Nazareth, Son of God, Savior of the world, Jew and Gentile alike. There are duplicate eschatological threads here in the Magnificat. So, in conclusion, if the key element of the Magnificat is the reversal of pride with humility, the inverse of being high and mighty with being lowly and weak. If that paradigm captures Mary's song, Elizabeth's experience, and John the Baptist's fetal consciousness. It's amazing to think about, isn't it? His fetal consciousness. Then our characters in Luke's drama are being pressed down into, conformed unto the paradigm that has seized Luke himself. These characters in his story are being pressed down into the paradigm that has taken hold of Luke himself. Since he began his research, you remember his prologue, first five verses? Since he recorded the eyewitness testimony, you remember the prologue, the first five verses? Since he carefully and exactly investigated all of the records and testimony, remember that prologue? these characters are being pressed down into the pattern of that which seized Luke, the life which changed his life, the story which altered his story, the person who reversed his pride, Luke's pride, and humbled him with lowliness. The supreme paradigm here which mirrors and reflects itself in every character we have met so far in Luke's gospel, Herod the Great accepted. The supreme paradigm of exaltation and humiliation is that which comes in the person of the incarnation. God humbling himself to become man. It comes in the person of the Son of God who humbles himself, that he may be exalted. An eschatological person with eschatological humility and eschatological exaltation. Such a person will, by the Holy Spirit, reverse the life of every person in every generation who is folded into him, joined unto him, united with him, Born again in him, dies and rises with him. Luke's life is reversed. Luke's life is reversed, mirrored in the life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate son of God, his savior. Mary's life is reversed. Mary's life is mirrored in the life, death, and resurrection of the incarnate Son of God, her Savior. Elizabeth's life is reversed. Elizabeth's life is mirrored in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, her Savior. And John the Baptist's life is reversed. Even in utero, his life is reversed. Mirrored in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, his Savior. Every child of Abraham in every generation has had their life reversed. Mirrored in the life, death, and resurrection of the Son of God, their Savior, and that forever. From everlasting to everlasting From this time, from this time of incarnation, and forevermore. Does your soul not magnify the Lord for such a reversal? And do you not exalt in God your Savior for such an alteration, you sons and daughters of Abraham? Who have been reborn to eschatological life forever and ever, generation after generation, world without end. Amen. Let us pray. Lord, we confess it is not just the story, magnificent as it is. It is not just the hymn, marvelous as it is. It is not just the facts that we gather from these events leading up to the Christmas story of Luke's gospel. Treasure them though we do. it is the story of the supreme and eschatological reversal. Such a story that could have never been dreamed of by a natural man. Such a story that could never have been dreamed of by a Roman poet. By a Greek songwriter or philosopher. Such a story that I hath not seen nor ear understood, save it come by direct revelation from your very sacred lips. And yet a revelation confirmed and experienced in the life of Luke, in the life of Elizabeth, in the life of Mary, in the life of John the Baptist, in the life of a host of other characters who will parade through this gospel. As a testimony to the eschatological reversal. Humbled. Humbled. As sons and daughters of Abraham in and through Christ Jesus. Exalted. Exalted as sons and daughters of Abraham in and through Christ Jesus. Sons and daughters of Abraham. Born again in his ultimate eschatological seed. We bless you for your Son, our incarnate Savior. We bless you for the Spirit who has turned our lives upside down to dwell within us, to change us from arrogant and proud to humble and lowly. We bless you for this gospel which turns sinners into saved believers. As we bless you, O Lord, pour out, pour out your blessing upon our weakness, upon our arrogance, upon our humility. Bless us in every aspect of our need and of our being. Bless us with the very image and reversal Christ Jesus has incarnated in time and space history. And we will bless you forever and ever and ever, both now in this time and unto eternity. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.